Welcome to the January episode of ONP Rising, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Kira Falbo, a research prosthetist orthotist at the Minneapolis VA and a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota. With me today is John Brinkman, MA, CPO, Fellow with Distinction, an associate professor at Northwestern University's Prosthetics Orthotics Center in Chicago. John is an active member of the profession. He serves as USISPO treasurer and is chair of the Academy's Behavioral Sciences Society. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks a lot, Kira. It's great to be doing this with you, and I'm excited for the discussion. Yeah, I'm excited to have you join me today to discuss developing and implementing strategies to help avoid burnout in the new year. Many of us begin the new year with setting resolutions. One resolution I hope we can all make is to avoid burnout. No matter where you are on your professional journey, the healthcare profession can be taxing, so I am excited to discuss burnout and potential tips on how to avoid it. So let's start by discussing what is burnout? One research article I found described burnout as a prolonged response to stressors. Some of the dimensions of the response are exhaustion, cynicism, detachment, a sense of ineffectiveness, and a lack of accomplishment. Its opposite is really engagement. So if you think of things that run counter to engagement, burnout falls into that category. An interesting part of the author's definition was that they stated that burnout involves a person's conception of both themselves and others. Dr. Jerry Stark and Dr. Gracie Finko produced an excellent webinar for the Academy early in 2023. And the biggest takeaway for me from that was that it starts with something that we care about, enjoy, and are good at, and it turns into not caring, not enjoying, and being less good at it. And let's talk about some of the causes of burnout. It seems like workload can be a major factor. That's definitely one of the factors. Others are perceived lack of control, issues of reward for our work, fairness, and a values mismatch. It's interesting to think about what factors are within our control and what aren't, or even for each of those factors, what we can control and what we can't. We can view burnout as something that happens to us due to external pressures, but I think it's helpful to think about it as something that happens inside of us as well, and maybe even something that we do to ourselves. Our individual responses are at the root of much of the burnout that we experience. I've gone through several burnout periods in my career, unfortunately, and I'm wondering what your experience with burnout has been, Kira. I think I've been able to avoid large burnout periods since I've actually gone through several transitions in my training and my jobs already. After my master's degree, I did two separate residencies in two separate locations, and then I moved into a research CPO job, and then I started a PhD program. And by changing the work I was doing and the location I was in, I avoided getting to a point of burnout in patient care or really in any of my jobs so far. And this wasn't necessarily a goal of mine at the start. This was more just a product of following my own interests in where I wanted to take my career and what opportunities were available to me at the time. But a nice side effect of this was avoiding some burnout. That's a really interesting point. Transitions like that can really be difficult. 
but there's also excitement with making progress in your career, learning new things, taking on new roles. It seems like burnout can be more of an issue after some extended time in one role or in similar roles. Initially, we enjoy what we do, and I think most of us want to make a difference. That's one reason we chose O&P. We want to achieve personal and professional goals, help the organization succeed, influence the process. And with time, we can begin to realize that we're less effective at achieving some of those goals than we had hoped. It's also pretty predictable that when we do a good job, we'll be asked to do more. The desire to influence with those pressures can turn into attempts to control things and people around us. And I found that when it's not effective or not as effective as we want it to be, that can trigger a cycle of dysfunctional responses. Are there any triggers for burnout or specific scenarios we can look for so that we can recognize when this might happen? I think we need to be willing to be honest and look at our motivations and our methods. Sometimes we're motivated by personal success more than the success of others. And sometimes the goals we have can be achieved if we develop other skills. But one example that I think of a lot is that I've, I've seen for many students working on group projects is really challenging. High-performing students often take on most or all the work, and that way they can ensure the quality and the timeliness of the product or project. Uh, and this may work in the short term, but in a job where you plan to stay for an extended time or where you have already been for an extended time, it can result in an unmanageable workload. And then we can develop resentment towards colleagues who contribute less and other challenges and obstacles that we have in our, in our workplace. I think a similar thing happens in clinical practice. And the problem is that the strategies we implement to achieve our goals may work in the short term, but they often have unintended long-term consequences. Have you seen any potential triggers during residency, either in your own experience or what you've heard from other residents? Yeah, as a resident and as a rising professional, I think we are really aware of how important it is to establish yourself and become known in the field. And I've seen this lead to residents feeling like they need to work long hours or sign up for a lot of extra opportunities, which probably leads to experiencing burnout faster. Yeah, that's a, an interesting point. I actually was thinking about that a little bit in the context of how we try to prepare students for residency. And I know in my courses, I make a big point of the increased demands and expectations that will be put on graduates. So the school environment tends to be pretty supportive and nurturing. And as challenging as it is, we tend to try to minimize the demands on students. And the real world is a little harsher than that. I feel like in our attempts to prepare students, we need to make them aware of that and also recognize that they need to up their game when they get into clinical practice, but also recognize there could be a dark side of that, that they're feeling that pressure then to do more than they should be. What do you think are factors that could have an impact on clinicians later in their career? It seems like there's somewhat of a flat career trajectory for ONP clinicians. Once you become a certified clinician, there isn't a lot of room for growth unless you want to specialize in a particular area or manage a clinic or go into something new like research or education. And I wonder if 
some of that lack of movement or lack of growth can make people feel some of that monotony and contribute to some of those feelings of burnout. It's interesting you mentioned monotony. I have an uncle who was an emergency room physician, and he used to say every job comes down to routine and monotony, which is an interesting thing for someone who works in the emergency department to say. But I've seen that to be true, really, that with time and experience, we get to a point where we're really proficient at the tasks that we do every day. There's a lot of repetition, and there isn't as much variety. I think another complicating factor is ONP is really small. If you're in a area where there's one or two practices, you don't necessarily have a lot of options to make changes. It may be that you're restricted to a particular geographic area for personal reasons or you're not interested in moving. So that really limits some opportunity for making changes that can ward off burnout. So what are some strategies we can use when we are experiencing burnout? For me, in, in the experiences that I've had with burnout, I've realized that the most important issue is self-awareness. We need to recognize the signs early and make changes to support a more balanced and healthy perspective on our work. I think we need to be aware of the negative spiral of beliefs and thoughts that lead to burnout and have a positive counter to them. So what do we tell ourselves instead of getting into that negative spiral? The problem really isn't that other people are terrible or incompetent or out to get us. There is a different way of framing some of those challenges. We've got to have an honest conversation with ourselves that includes an honest appraisal of things below the surface, like our motives. It can be really helpful to get the input from people around us, as difficult as that is, but people who we trust and know our, uh, have our best interests at heart can give us some perspective on things we might not see ourselves. I think another important thing is an attitude of acceptance. We can't control many of the things that impact our daily work and some of the really important things that impact our work. We need to accept that and the other realities of the real world and working with people. Things may not always be done to the level of perfection that we think they should be. That's a normal part of the human experience and not necessarily a failure on our part. And we're not likely to change those realities by trying to control situations or other people. So we can continue to strive for influence rather than control whatever the situation is. And that's an appropriate and healthy goal rather than trying to control things. I think a lot about the quote from the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And sometimes you'll see that as just the obstacle is the way. And I've thought that when I've encountered challenges that these are not necessarily only obstacles to the way I think things should be done or what I want to accomplish. They become what I need to work through to accomplish the goals I have. And if I'm not having the influence I want to have, I have to be willing to consider what I can change about my skills and approach. I've really had to reevaluate my collaboration strategies, for instance, rather than assuming that I need to take on more to ensure that things get done right or get done at all, I need to learn how to work more effectively with others. If our go-to solution for addressing a problem is to take more work on ourselves, we miss the opportunities to get better at working with others. And we also deprive them of the opportunity to contribute and grow. And I think another big issue is knowing when and how to say no. Saying yes to everything may be keeping others from contributing and developing in their own ability to contribute more. And it's difficult to say no when 
We know we do a good job. We take our role seriously. We want to ensure a positive outcome. So one thing I've learned is to frame responses in the context of organizational goals, not just I can't do anymore or I don't want to do anymore, but instead I won't be able to do the quality of work that you're looking for if I take this on. Or here are the 10 priorities or projects that I'm working on right now. Which of these would you like me to reprioritize or put on hold to work on this new project? That frames things in a constructive way. I'm not just taking myself out of the equation and saying no in some sort of absolute way. I'm saying maybe I could. Some things need to change about my workload. Another question or another way to phrase it is how can I support someone else in taking this on? So I'd like with you to ensure that this goal gets met and that might mean someone else takes it on and I work with them and that could help their contribution grow. Kira, I know that you are someone who says yes a lot and you do a really great job and high quality work. So I imagine you get a lot of requests to contribute. How do you see this issue of saying no? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it can be especially difficult for rising professionals to say no to opportunities or feel like they're able to say no to opportunities when we feel like we need to make a name for ourselves in the field it can be easy just to say yes to everything and then to become overcommitted but i think when new opportunities come up it can be important for us to remember our personal interests and our values and to evaluate whether that opportunity is something that matches with those. For example, I knew I wanted to move into a research role in the ONP fields throughout school and residency. I really was saying yes to any chance to get experience in research in particular. And once we realize what opportunities we want to say yes to, we can maybe then start to realize which ones we can turn down. That's a really good point. I remember those discussions that we had when you were a student, and it was really exciting to see you achieve that goal of getting into a PhD program and pursue that passion. And I've always looked at that as an example of having a specific goal and doing the work needed to achieve it. I hadn't really thought of that other side of it that for you meant saying no to other options and other opportunities. That's a really excellent point. That really addresses the issue of values mismatch. I think that's one that we can sometimes pause at when we hear, like, how does a values mismatch impact burnout? But that's a really great point that we're always making decisions every time we say yes to something to say no to something else and vice versa. Uh, I wish I'd learned that a long time ago. We may be investing a lot of energy ultimately into work that doesn't actually match our values and doesn't help us achieve our goals. I know that you also pursue a lot of interests outside of work. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, having hobbies and interests outside of work can help a lot. Even if you're not experiencing burnout, other hobbies can be a really great way to just disconnect and spend some time doing something else you enjoy so that you feel rejuvenated when you are back at work. Personally, in my free time, I really like to paint and I like to play rec sports. And I feel like having those hobbies actually makes me better at my job and allows me to give more energy to my work since I've spent some time away from it. Do you think there is a permanent solution to burnout? I don't really think that there is. I think that we've got to recognize that there isn't just one 
permanent solution. I've always liked the advice that our job isn't to prepare the path, but to prepare ourselves for the path. So clearly having things like goals that we're pursuing is a very valuable thing, but we're going to encounter obstacles to that. And there's going to be challenges in a variety of ways, many that we don't anticipate, but a lot that we can. And we can certainly learn from the experience of others and how they've navigated that. If we develop healthy attitudes toward work in general and are growing in our interpersonal and collaboration skills, that sets us up to navigate those obstacles more effectively and make better decisions and respond better to burnout factors in the future. I found that one of the ways that I get revitalized, and this technically is work-related, I realize this, but attending national meetings, networking, socializing with other OMP professionals is really invigorating to me. It expands my understanding of my role as part of the OMP profession. I can learn a lot, which like we were talking earlier, that's one of the challenges later in our careers is that we can stop learning. It's helpful to recognize the contributions that others are making. It can be humbling at times for, wow, someone else has really achieved a lot in an area that I'm interested in, and I can learn from that and celebrate that with them. And volunteering for the academy, actually contributing more there. Again, that's work-related. So I may be revealing some things about workaholism in my own character, but I find that type of break from the normal routine of my job can be a really invigorating thing. So the Academy meeting is coming up in March, and I'm looking forward to that opportunity. I think we're both going to be there and contributing and as well as benefiting from the contributions of others. So I'm really looking for that opportunity to reconnect with colleagues and friends in the profession. I agree. I'm really looking forward to the conference in March as well. It's going to be a great way to get reconnected and re-engaged in the profession. Thanks again for joining us today, John, and thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of ONP Rising. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with seasoned ONP professionals as they share candid insights on topics relevant to those interested in starting on the right foot when it comes to a career in ONP. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for ONP professionals, the award-winning ONP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard, and ONP Clinical Insiders with Academy Scientific Society's Chair Seth O'Brien, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>